I would be remiss if I did not take a moment and thank you again for the opportunity to be your guest today. And also thank you for anybody who had anything to do with the contribution to the feast we had at lunch. Now, I don't know how I'm supposed to preach to a group that's been fed like that. Uh, I am trained in CPR. If your eyes close... Anyway, <laughs> now everybody's up both right, so that, that takes care of the sleepiness, I think. Thank you again for letting me be here and for the warm welcome and the kind things that have been said as, as we close out our, our special events today. I want to talk about dealing with what I would call unsolvable problems. I used to do uh, seminars on conflict resolution. Well, I now call it conflict regulation. Research shows that 70% of all marital problems are unsolvable. Let me say that again. The actual statistic is 69%. 70% of all marital problems are unsolvable. If you're in a relationship with a member of the opposite sex, there's some things you're not going to fix. She's a morning person, you're an evening person. You're organized, she's not. One of you is male, one of you is female. You're not going to change that. And if you do, one of you will be real unhappy, all right? And so it, it, it's, it's not a fixable thing. What research is showing us is that rather than trying to solve conflicts, we're just changing the way people behave while they're in conflict. In fact, uh, this author that I referred to this morning, John Gottman, Gottman says he can sit in a room with a couple, listen to them engage in conflict for 10 minutes, and predict divorce with 95% accuracy. I'm not that good, but I'm close. I can watch how people interact when they are in conflict or when they're fighting, and I can tell you whether that marriage is, is on the way in or on the way out. What Gottman does in a lot of his literature, and if you want the bibliography, especially if you're in eldership and, and you want some tools for dealing with couples that are in conflict, uh, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail by John Gottman, uh, Seven Principles for Strengthening Marriages by John Gottman, uh, Divorce Busting by Michelle Werner Davis, uh, some really, really good stuff on how to deal with conflict. What Gottman does in his book is he identifies four markers. He calls them the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, which I thought was just pretty creative. But as, as you deal... Oh, I'm sorry I threw you under the bus, Doug. That is, that is a habit scar. We, with, at the uh, police academy, we call it training scars. You do something the same way, and you do it whether it means, makes any sense or not. And, and so I'm used to saying the local guy stands up, and you told me before services you had some place to be, and I just had brain gas and then went ahead and threw you under the bed. I apologize for that. But as you, as you talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these are four markers that if they are present in your relationship, and I've gone to Forrest to, to, after reading Gottman's stuff and looking at some things, if they're present in any system, it's catastrophic system failure. If you deal with your conflict with your spouse this way, if an elder deals with conflict this way with the church, if a preacher's preaching sounds this way, if you're a manager and you manage this way, if you're a coach and you coach this way, if these markers are present in some form or fashion in, in your system or in your relationship, there's going to be trouble. And let's just do something. 
some basic education first, and then we'll try to make some scriptural application. Number one is the presence of contempt. When you deal with another person with contempt, now, in my experience, men view contempt as disrespect. Women view contempt as lack of affection. That's a very interesting thing. You read Ephesians 5 and especially Emerson Egret's book called Love and Respect. You'll find out that the Bible tells wives to respect their husbands and husbands to love their wives. Men are wired for respect. That, that's, that's how we manage. Most guys in this room probably would, would agree to this statement. You know, it's nice if you like me, but I really don't care as long as you treat me with respect. Most guys get on board with that. Uh, women, however, want the affection. And so to a man, if you treat him with contempt, that's to undermine him or undergird him or in some way make him feel less of a man. To a woman, disrespect or contempt is not treating her with affection. Not treating her with affection is the idea that you don't see what is important to her as is important to you. Now, sometimes we call that attunement. It's viewing the world from their angle. Uh, I'm blessed to have a busy schedule. I know where I'm going to be speaking in 2018. I know when the next UFC fight's going to be on. I know when deer season opens up. I know when bow season opens up. Uh, I, I know when the next time I'm supposed to float the river and shoot fish with a bow. I know all this stuff. But if I don't remember the trash comes every Monday, my wife says, well, you manage all this time schedule for you, but you don't remember how to manage this to help me out. You know, you may be able to fix a home network. You may be able to repair a transmission in a, a 57 Ford. But the kitchen sink's been leaking for six months. She says, hey, you can deal with your stuff. but you And they see that as a lack of affection. And men and women, when they run into something where they feel like they've either been disrespected or treated with contempt, that creates a, a pretty serious problem. Um, I like to illustrate it with the idea that if you're unhappy about something and you bring it to somebody's attention, you can do that either as a complaint or as a criticism. Now, my operational definition of that is this. A complaint talks about the problem. A criticism talks about the person. And that's the same thing with parents and their kids. You know, if your child is involved in athletics, when they finish playing ball, you don't talk about whether they did good or bad, got on base, struck out, won. You say, I love to watch you play. I love to watch you play whether you win or whether you lose. You're an amazing person. It's amazing to watch young people with their enthusiasm and their energy and their skill and their talent. And I don't really care whether you win or lose. I just like to watch you play. That's way different than, boy, you really stuck it up out there tonight. The difference in a complaint and a criticism is, is you're talking about the problem or talking about the person. Uh, I try to deer hunt some. I'm self-employed, so my boss is really easy to get time off with. And I'll, I'll spend some time deer hunting. My wife can say, you're never home. Or my wife can say, I wished we spent more time together. Hey, that's the same message. One of those has some honey in it. One of those has some rattlesnake venom in it. And so the idea of, of, of getting this message across as to whether or not you give a person respect or an absence of contempt starts in this healing process. Now, the cascade that takes place is if somebody approaches you with contempt, you enter into the, to the next step, which is defensiveness. You launch a complaint at me 
and I interpret it or either you intend it as contempt and I get that emotion-based response. That <gasps> If somebody says something to you, does something to you, doesn't say something or doesn't do something and your initial response is <gasps> we call that an assault cue at the police academy. You've been triggered into an emotion base of thinking. And when you begin to think with your emotions, some really interesting stuff happens. By the way, your teenager, right below the roof of their mouth, the midpoint of their brain, has this little thing called the amygdala. The amygdala is your threat receptor for your brain. It is larger in a teenager than it will ever be in any other time in their life. It is the thing that assesses threat. Uh, people who get stuck with a, a, an amygdalic loop in post-traumatic stress disorder, they've had that amygdala triggered, and it gets re-triggered, re-triggered, re-triggered. And the, the human brain tends to take things that are similar and make them the same. That's how post-traumatic stress works. If you get stung by a hornet, you'll flinch at a housefly because your, your brain says, similar, ah, and it runs away. So when you get somebody triggers you into an emotional response, there's a, a contemptuous word said, a contemptuous deed done. And, and by the way, those don't have to be intentional. A lot of that can be done with your perception. If we're standing in the backyard and we're throwing a baseball to each other and you throw the ball and it hits and hurts my palm, sometimes it has nothing to do with the way you threw the ball. It has everything to do with the way I caught the ball. Because if you catch the ball in the pocket of the glove, you catch it on the palm, it's going to hurt you. Well, when, when you throw a ball and I think it was thrown too hard, how do I tell you that? I unload that cannon right back at you, don't I? And then you unload yours. And we, humans exchange emotional heat. So when somebody approaches you and that response is, is viewed accurately or inaccurately as contempt, you move into a defensive posture. The teenager's amygdala is larger than it will ever be in their life. So everything is a threat to them. If they don't have the right kind of shirt, they're at threat. If they don't have the right style of boot, they're at threat. If they don't have a, a phone that'll launch a space shuttle, they're at threat. Everything that happens in their lives is, is, is a threat to them. And so something innocuous from you, could you pass the salt? Oh, you can't do anything for yourself. That's a normal teenage response because they view their world with threat. Well, when you're threatened, how do you respond? <gasps> Fight or flight response. Now, Colonel Dave Grossman's book, On Killing, he talks about that there's fight, there's flight, there's posture, and submit. But they both are very similar because when I get an assault cue, I begin to move into a defensive pattern. And that defensive pattern does some real interesting stuff. Because first of all, it makes me operate in the emotional brain rather than the intellectual brain. When you're discussing something with your spouse or with your teenager, and your heart rate goes above 100 beats a minute... You move from your forebrain into your midbrain. In your midbrain, you operate about like a puppy. You don't process logic. You don't process humor. You have tunnel vision. You lose the ability to hear. You lose the ability to listen. And it becomes this visceral reaction kind of thing. Well, when that happens and I'm in a defensive mode, you've attacked me. I'm defending. What happens is you've reduced your operating system to playing a zero-sum game. Now, what's a zero-sum game? zero-sum game is the difference between the stock market and gambling. If you invest with me in the stock market, we both make money. In gambling, one of us makes money, one of us loses money. 
That's a zero-sum game. In order for me to win, you must lose. In order for me to be right, you must be wrong. In order for me to be happy, you must be mad. When somebody approaches you with contempt and you respond with defensiveness, and that defensiveness becomes a competition, I'm right, you're wrong, I win, you lose. You know what your baseline setting is there? Selfishness. And when I drop into selfishness as a mode of operation, I'm not trying to solve a problem. I'm trying to win some kind of silly competition. I'm trying to win points. Nobody wins a fight. Nobody wins an argument. You solve a problem or you show respect for the other person, but it's not about... And if you've got somebody who's keeping score in a relationship, one of you will always be behind There's no relationships that end in a draw or a no contest when somebody else is keeping score. So the contempt triggers this response that is emotion-based. And when you're thinking emotionally, you just don't think very well. Emotion-based thinking is categorized by lots of things. One of the the, the categories of emotion-based thinking is the line that separates ideal and unacceptable. In my world, that wall represents ideal. That wall represents unacceptable. As long as I don't cross that line, I'm a happy little ball guy. A teenager separates ideal and unacceptable about like that. If I didn't do it all, I can't do any of it. If you didn't let me go there, you've let me, you've never let me go anywhere. If you didn't buy me that, you've never bought me anything. If that boy doesn't love me, I'll never have a boyfriend again. And then they swap between ideal and unacceptable. And a lot of times as parents, we do the same thing. If you didn't think about me in this situation, you never thought about me. Because in order for me to maintain a defensive role, I've got to do the next thing, and that is I've got to focus only on the negative. We call it negative sentiment override. I paint our relationship with a a, a paintbrush that is emotion-based. I don't look at what I know. I only look at what I feel. Think about Esau for an instance. You read that chapter in Genesis. Esau comes in from the field and the Bible says he's tired, he's famished, he's weary, he's hungry. So he walks in from the field and his brother's cooking red soup. He says, hey, let me have some of your red soup. His brother says, give me your birthright and you can have my red soup. And he says, what good is my birthright to me? I'm starving to death. How do you go from I'm hungry and tired till I'm starving to death? That's kind of a stretch, isn't it? And the only thing that will satisfy my hunger is your red soup. Who's Esau's father? Isaac? Who's Esau's grandfather? Abraham? Do these people live under the bridge in Palestine? No, Abraham's a powerful Middle Eastern sheik. Abraham's got so many flocks and herds that he and Lot can't live in the same geographical area. They've had to separate. What would happen in Esau's life if he were to just turn around? You think he'd see a sheep, a goat, a calf, a pigeon, a turtle dove, a bowl of figs, a servant that could bring him some food? But he gets into this negative-based thinking where the only thing that I don't have is that soup, and the only thing i got to have is that soup, and if I don't get that soup, I'm going to die. Hey, husbands, we lose our marriages when the only person I need to be with is her. The only thing that makes me happy is that. The only person who, un- who understands me and fulfills me, ladies, is him. 
And you start getting that emotion-based thinking and you start thinking in the negative. I feel like you've disrespected me. You've not shown me affection. You've not shown me respect. You've treated me with contempt. So I get defensive. In order to maintain that defensive posture and operate on this selfishness basis, I've got to keep thinking about you in negative terms. And once I start labeling you as you always and you never and every time, I'm thinking with what I feel rather than what I know. And please understand, your emotions are not instructions. Your emotions are information. They tell you something, not tell you to do something. But a lot of times we get in this negative sentiment override, and when you're in negative sentiment override, you begin to paint everything about that relationship as bad. You show me a couple in negative sentiment override, it literally had this happen. I told a guy, hey, Today you leave my office, you go buy your wife a dozen roses. He walks in the house with a dozen roses. She said, what have you done? (laughs) He's the bad guy all the time. She can't see the good stuff. And all of a sudden what happens in the back part of our thinking when we get into this negativity, we're only thinking about the bad stuff, is, is we start comparing our current level with an alternative level. And anytime you make a current level, alternative level comparison and your current level suffers, you're headed out the door. That's why people trade cars that run perfectly. Because they talk about the thing that's unhappy. Your wife comes in and says, this kitchen is inconvenient. That means you're getting a new house. Because when they look at things like that... It, it, it fails to be able to look at logically and is always looked at emotionally. So the four horsemen is contempt, complaints that sound like criticism. I get defensive and me being defensive is I'm trying to win an argument rather trying to solve a problem. And by the way, a marker for defensiveness is uh, minimization, denial, and blame. I bring something to your table and, and there's a, an issue at hand. If you offer me minimization, denial, or blame, you're not trying to solve the problem. You're trying to get out of trouble. Look at the reaction of Saul when he does not utterly destroy the Amalekites. And you'll see minimization, denial, and blame. Well, I, I only kept a few things. I have obeyed the Lord. Oh, the people made me keep the choicest stuff. Compare his reaction to the reaction of David when David is confronted about the sin of Bathsheba. Against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart, O God. If you wanted burnt offerings, I'd offer them. But what you want is a broken and a contrite heart. That's the difference in true repentance and this false repentance. So, so the, the contempt leads to this defensiveness. The defensiveness leads to negativity. And at some point the negativity leads to stonewalling or disengaging. If you're really, 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 really mad at your spouse, there's hope for your marriage. But when you're numb... When you're disengaged, when it just doesn't matter, that's when your marriage is in trouble. Because really, apathy is the killer of the marriage, not passion. People who fight passionately make up passionately. People who are passionate about other things in their lives are are passionate in all all the other aspects. I like to illustrate this particular point. There's been a conflict, there's been a problem, and somebody offers a repair attempt. Well, in a repair attempt, you can turn towards someone or you can turn away from someone. You do the same thing with bids for affection. You, you, you offer me something and I can either turn towards you or turn away. I illustrate it like this. As, as I said earlier uh, this morning, I'm not a good math student. But I went to high school at Oxford High. My wife went to school at Bald Knob High School. in Bald Knob, Arkansas. See, please don't ever tell anybody you were Miss Bald Knob. Uh, just tell them you grew up in Velvet Ridge. But, but their mathematical theory is saying, my wife has this mathematical theory 
that if something costs five hundred dollars and she can buy it for three hundred dollars she has saved me two hundred dollars now when they taught me math there was a number line had plus signs and minus signs on it if I open up my checkbook and there's negative three hundred that means three Benjamins walked out the door never to be seen or heard from again ain't nobody saved me money if you're saving me money, there's a plus sign. There's money there. Yay, and I'm a happy little guy. But the way she does math doesn't work that way. So I walk in the house, and she announces, I saved you money by spending $300. Well, my head may explode. And I may speak to her about the differences in our mathematical theories. And then I realize that I'm a cad, and I need to fix that. So I offer her a repair attempt, and I say, Honey, uh, you saved me money, and I got grouchy about it. She can turn toward me. You know, I appreciate the fact we're self-employed. We've got a, a financial plan. We're trying to do the Dave Ramsey thing. And I appreciate the fact that, that you're concerned about how we're preparing for the future. I've offered her a repair attempt, and she's turned toward me. If she turns away from me, honey, you saved me money last night, and, and, and I got mad and said things I shouldn't say. Yeah, and you know what? You nickel and dime me to death. And I can't spend a dime without you worrying about it. You always want to see her say, I feel like I'm living with somebody from the IRA. Now all of a sudden, instead of turning toward me, she turns away from me. When that happens in a relationship, you end up with this backlog of unfinished business. And every time there's an assault cue, every time there's a trigger, every time there's a re-traumatization, that thing which seems similar to all this stuff comes back up and it becomes present language. If one or more of those things is present in your relationship, it is in the danger zone. If three or more of those things are present in your relationship, it is catastrophic system failure. Now, how do you negate these? How do you change them? How do you fix it? Ephesians chapter 4, what the young man read for us, or at least the beginnings of that. Now, this is not a, a, a one-to-one exchange, the four horsemen and four verses, but some concepts in Ephesians 4 talks about attitudes that we have as Christians to fix our conflict resolution, to fix our conflict regulation. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25, number 1. Therefore, put away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. The first thing is that I've got to ask myself, am I really being truthful about myself as it concerns you? Did you mean to hurt my feelings? Did you mean to say that in a bad way? Did, did, did you mean to disrespect me? Or have I decided we're enemies and I'm going to superimpose that idea on you? By the way, you know it's ridiculous for me to give you the power to hurt my feelings. You don't have the power to hurt my You don't have the power to make me mad. I don't have the power to make you mad. If I had the power to make you mad, if I had that Jedi mind trick thing rocking, if I could make you mad, I could make you happy. If I could make you fail, I can make you succeed. If I could make you leave the church, I can make you sit on that front row every Sunday. If I could make you drink, I could keep you sober. If I could make you cheat, I could keep you faithful. If I could make you kill yourself, I could keep you alive. If you're doing anything other than I would choose, I'm not driving this bus. But we give people the ability to control our lives well, they really don't have that. So when you start talking about the other person and you start thinking about why they did what they did or why they said what, be truthful. 
Are you looking to fight or are you looking to be friends? Are you looking to get along or are you looking to be at odds? When we first moved to Huntsville, we lived in a little house on Lakewood Avenue. And uh, we were there. We'd been living out in the country in Salem. And I could get out and prowl around while I'm in this urban environment. And I decided I'd go down to the local community center and play basketball. Yes, a guy my height went to play basketball at the local community center. Nobody at the community center introduced themselves to me. They did not invite me to be on a team. I had to get down in the middle of the floor and fight with people just to get my hands on the basketball. I stayed about 30 minutes and went home. In the middle of that summer, my wife's brother came home. He came to visit with us and stay a few days. His name was Shane. He was in high school. He got a basketball at Christmas. And by the time his birthday rolled around, he would have it so slick you couldn't pick it up. He'd get a basketball for his birthday. And he went Christmas, birthday, birthday, Christmas, Christmas, birthday, wearing out basketballs. He comes to stay with us for a few days, says, hey, is there a place to play basketball here? I said, yeah, there's a community center down there, but you won't like it. He went down there and played four hours. Because he was there to play basketball, not there to be buddies with people. When you're in love with the Lord... Nothing I say, nothing I do, nothing I don't say, nothing I don't do can make you mad and go away. If I can run you off from the Lord by something I do or don't do, you and the Lord aren't very tight anyway. And in a relationship, when I decide I'm in it for the commitment, I've decided to be, I don't get to blame you for my unhappiness. I don't get to say that, that it's my fault or that it's your fault that I'm unhappy. I've I got to tell the truth about why I feel the way I feel. I want to be unhappy. I've chosen to be unhappy. Therefore, put away lying. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. Maybe it's not overt lying. We're not out here with libel and slander. We're not out here gossiping. But it may be that in our hearts what we're saying is we're painting you with this negative sentiment override. And we say every time and you always and you never and I give you these labels. You're a jerk or you're a witch or you're a... The Bible says don't, don't, don't speak faults in your heart or in public about the other person. So, so that kills one of our horsemen. Therefore put away lying. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. For we members one for another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath nor give place to the devil. There is a place where we've got to understand that human emotion is healthy if it's handled appropriately. You can be angry and not sin. Now, now be careful with this. Oh, Brother Jones, that, that be angry, that's an imperative. We're supposed Well, it says handle with care on a box of dynamite, and that's an imperative. That doesn't mean you get it and go run around the neighborhood with it. If you get this off the shelf, there's a way to handle it, there's a way to deal with it, there's a way to manage it. If you choose to be angry, don't let that emotion lead you into sin. Don't let that emotion lead you down a path. Don't let that emotion lead you to contempt or negativity or defensiveness. Be angry and don't sin. Number three, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath and give place to the devil. Now, the old King James Version says, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath and give the devil a foothold. As much as I wish that was a rock climbing term, it's not. It's a military term. What it says is that if I'm angry and I harbor bitterness and I harbor a grudge and I harbor these negative things in my heart about you and the sun goes down upon the wrath, it's basically like a military team that goes in and takes over a section of a, of a jungle. And they establish a camp. And from that camp, they send out a patrol and they, they build another camp. And from that camp, they send out a patrol and they build another camp. And from that camp, they send out a patrol and, and they start taking over territory. If you go to bed 
angry at your spouse, angry at your kids, angry at your parents, angry at the elders, angry at your minister, angry at your brothers and sisters, and you let the sun go down upon your wrath, figuratively, you've given the devil some territory. And when the devil takes over your thoughts, he'll eventually take over your heart. When he takes over your heart, he'll take over your speech. When he takes over your speech, he'll take over your actions, and then you've lost the battle to the devil. If you have negativity all the time in your life, you've given the devil a foothold, and he's going to take over that relationship. He's going to take over that dynamic, and he's going to ruin it. Number four, verse 28. Who stole, steal no longer. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. When you recognize that there's a something that you're doing that makes things not work well, recognize that it You've got some ownership here. When I recognize that my behavior is not working, let him who stole do what? Stop stealing. Do the opposite. In fact, when I recognize that my behavior is dysfunctional, I stop doing that and start doing something different. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor working with his hands. If you can say, every time I do this, my spouse says this, you know something you can change. Every time my parents, every time I do this, my parents do this, you've got something you can change. I wish my parents would quit nagging at me. Then do what they ask you to do the first time they ask you to do it, and they won't repeat it, and it's not nagging. By the way, a very simple procedure in behavior modification is delayed obedience is disobedience. Every single time. Noncompliance is defiance. If you're a teenager, think back to how you used to play Simon Says. How do you win Simon Says? Do what Simon says when Simon says to do it. And if you've got a delayed reaction to that, you don't win. Well, you just got to play Mom and Dad Says. Actually, you have to play God Says. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus is missing from his parents. His parents show up and find him in the temple. Now, the, the, the background of this is that... They've taken Jesus to temple, and he has become a son of the commandments. It's his bar mitzvah. He, he is the son of the covenant. He's a man. He is now going to be answerable to God for himself. His relationship with God doesn't go through his parents. And as a man, he's got to declare his occupation. So what is your occupation? And every little cleaned up Jewish boy there says, I'm going to do my father's business. And his parents leave, and Jesus goes to work. Because he knows his father's not a carpenter. He knows his father's not a woodworker. He knows his father, that's his father's house. He's in the temple. His parents find him either three to five days later. Can you imagine the insanity of a parent who has missed a kid for three to five days? They find this guy, a 12-year-old boy, sitting in the temple, talking to the elders, asking and answering questions. And this is such a stressful event that his mother speaks up and says, Your father and I have been worried about you. It's a bad thing when one of your parents blames the other parent on you. I mean, that's just a bad scenario. My brother and I went to this church in Anniston. A girl moved in our community from California. Her name was Leslie Head. She lived in DeArmondville, Alabama. You don't know where DeArmondville is. There, the, the people who live there in God know where DeArmondville is. That's a, in in DeArmondville, Alabama, you have to head toward town to hunt. I mean, that's how far away DeArmondville was in those days. This young lady stays for a youth devotional, and the Jones boys, as gallant as we were, are going to take this young lady home. This is before cell phones. This is before GPSs. This is way before Google Earth. This young lady has only been in Alabama two weeks, and she can't find her house. 
We are lost as a goose. We prowl around over these back roads and back. We finally find a phone booth called Pam Butterworth. Pam Butterworth knows the deal, and we get this young lady home. The Jones boys walk into our house around midnight that night. My dad's still setting up. My dad's not dressed for bed. He said, you boys are late. I said, Dad, she couldn't remember where she lived. He said, you can do better than that. And then he said, your mother is worried to death. And I said, why ain't she up? Don't ever ask that question. (laughs) Just negative. Don't go there. All right. Mary is in temple. And she speaks up and says, your father and I are scared to death. She's never opened her mouth in temple. And she's so upset about the absence of her little boy that she speaks. And Jesus says, what? Why are you looking for me? Don't you know I must be about my father's business. You brought me down here. You made me clean up. I had to go through this ceremony and say, I'm going to do dad's work. I'm doing it. And the Bible says they did not understand the words he spoke to them. Who's right in this situation, Jesus or his parents? Who has a clue here, Jesus or his parents? Who's got better information, Jesus or his parents? Obviously, Jesus knows who He is, where He's from, what He's supposed to be doing. The Bible says they did not understand the words He spoke with them. And Jesus went with them and was subject unto them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. You know what that teaches young people? That teaches that your parents don't have to have a degree in child psychology. That teaches your parents don't have to be right. That teaches your parents don't have to understand everything going on with you. That teaches you that you're submissive and you obey your parents. Period. Because the Son of God, even though He knew what He was supposed to do, had to wait to be 30 to enter into His private ministry as a rabbi. When you figure out what you're not doing, do the opposite. To do the same thing the same way and expect different results is a sign of insanity. Minimization, denial, and blame keeps us from recognizing, hey, my behavior is contributing to this, and the only part of this I can control is my behavior. So let him who stole steal no longer... Instead, let him labor working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who is in need. Verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That verse basically talks about the negativity and the contempt. When I say something to you, listen, listen at the restrictions. It can't be a corrupt word... And the only thing I say to you is what is good for necessary edification, that it imparts grace. Well, Lonnie, what about constructive criticism? Constructive criticism is something I say to you that makes you better. But if I say something to you and it just makes me feel better, that's not constructive. That's just criticism. So many times we deal with people and and, and it's about our comfort, not about their improvement. Your words can't be corrosive. Your words can't be corrupting. Your words can't be things that that hurt people, but instead they should impart grace, Greek word charis, a gift to the hearer. A word fitly spoken is like an apple of gold and a pitcher of silver, Solomon says. Are the things that we say to people to build them up, or are we saying things to tear them down? The things that we use to instruct people, are, are they things that make them feel good, or are we just saying things to make ourselves feel better about something we're unhappy about? Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
Compare that to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, the contempt and the negativity. When I communicate with you, when I talk to you as a coach, as a parent, as a spouse, as a kid to a parent, as an elder to a congregation, in any way, shape, or form, I either speak with you with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, or I speak to you with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and malice. And one of those builds a relationship and one of those destroys a relationship. One of those makes a person view their value and one of them makes a person feel devalued. And it destroys relationships. And then verse 32. And be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You talk about turning away or turning toward that's the verse. When you offend me or you've been offensive or you've done something wrong, giving you what you need as opposed to giving you what you deserve, that's the difference in being kind one to another. It's the difference in being tender-hearted or being punitive or being vindictive. I'm afraid sometimes we enjoy punishing people. We enjoy getting... Even Romans chapter 13 verse 8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. Let no debt remain outstanding. I don't have to balance our books. I don't have to hurt you because you hurt me. I don't cheat on you because you cheated on me. I don't insult you because you insulted me. In fact, when Jesus teaches about it, He says you turn the other cheek and you go the second mile. The concept behind turn the other cheek is in the context of you've heard it said by those of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Pharisees took that civil law and they made it, if you get my tooth, I get your tooth. If you get my eye, I get your eye. And that's not what that verse was about. That verse was... If you get my tooth, the only thing I can demand from you is a tooth. You get my tooth, I can't cut your head off. You poke my eye out, I, I, you, I, I can only get what's just and fair to recompense. They didn't sue for pain and suffering. You just replaced what was lost. But the Pharisees had built it into, you owe me a tooth, I get my tooth. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not what it's about. To fix a relationship with a brother, you be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. And I can turn the other cheek and I can go the second mile. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You've heard it said by those of old, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you, and spitefully use you, that you may be sons of your father. You treat people the way you treat people because of who your father is, not because of how the way they behave turn the other cheek and go the second mile, those are not verses designed to change other people's behavior. Those are verses designed to say, because of who I am, that's how I choose to behave. And as a child of God in a healthy relationship, I'm kind, I'm tender-hearted, I think about your needs, not my hurts, and I forgive you as Christ forgave me. How many times do you have to ask forgiveness? from Him. And, and I think there's a principle here that Jesus has said before that, that I'll forgive you based on how you forgive other people. 
And Paul says in relationships, it's not about the other person's ability to be perfect. It's about your ability to forgive to make those relationships work. My wife and I have been married 30 years. And not because I'm perfect. But because every day she starts out with a perfect husband. Because she forgives me that night. We start every day brand new because there's no unfinished business. Our relationship is like it is and it's not perfect. But she understands forgiveness. Your relationship with God starts every day brand new. Not because you can execute and be perfect, but because God forgives you. The four horsemen, contempt, defensiveness, negativity, and stonewalling or turning away... You apply those simple verses, Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, and you negate those and you change the dynamic of your relationship. You say, hey, Lonnie, I noticed a hole in your theory here. You left out verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How does that fit into our theory? You read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is full of intentional language. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about that God who He predestined chose us before the world according to His own purpose, according to the pleasure that He purposed in Himself, according to the things that He predestined. Now, when you read predestined in the New Testament, think the term predetermined. Predetermined means that if if I get A and B, C will happen. Not I'm going to make A happen, I'm going to make B happen. Predetermined is the idea that if these things fall into place, this falls into place. On our 25th anniversary, my wife, who teaches science, said that she wanted to go to Hawaii and see volcanoes because she's a science teacher. She said if she could redo her career, she'd be a volcanologist. I said, baby, those things aren't real. They're only on Star Trek. She hit me with a pillow. But um, on our anniversary, she wanted to go to Hawaii. We got married December 22nd before I was a deer hunter. And on our 25th anniversary, she wants me to spend eight days on a boat in the middle Pacific Ocean in the middle of deer season where there are no deer. I've looked. I predetermined that the day before I got on that boat, I was going to sit in a white oak tree on Keel Mountain. And I predetermined that that if an antlered buck walked by me, he would go to the house. I didn't make him walk by. I didn't make him mess up. I didn't make him show up. But I predetermined that if he showed up while I was there with my rifle, he'd go into the house. And he did. God predetermined some things are going to happen. God chose God. There's intentional language in Ephesians 1. And listen at the culmination of the intentional language. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And put all things under His feet. Gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Everything that God wanted to do, everything that was in this mystery, everything that was in this intentional language, everything that was in this purpose, everything that was predetermined was going to be fulfilled in the church. And if the church is not healthy and the church is not strong, the purpose of God fails. Ephesians 4 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because if your families aren't strong... The church can't be strong. If our children aren't raised properly and in submission, our families fall apart and the church can't be strong. When this verse says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, it fits way outside the Gottman model and talks about the God model. Because our congregation can only be as strong as our families are. 
Our congregation can only have the strength that our marriages have. Our congregation can only be as forgiving as our husbands are to their wives and our wives to our husbands. Our congregation can only be as faithful to the Lord as we are faithful to each other. And so, yeah, this fits outside a little bit of the Gottman model. If you have those four horsemen, if you have contempt and negativity and defensiveness and you turn away and you hold these grudges, not only will our families not be strong, but our churches will split. Drive from here to Huntsville. And I wish that all those churches that I drove by were because we're mission-oriented and evangelistic. But you know that's not the case. They're there because our people let the four horsemen come into their congregation and split and divide and backbite and fight. And the world looks at us and says, those people talk about the love of God. They don't even love each other. They can't all meet in the same building. It'd be a shame for the church to fail because our families fail. It'd be a shame for the families to fail because the church fails. This is the formula to eliminate and neutralize the four horsemen and make the church of God be what the church of God is supposed to be. Now, if in describing these relationships, you recognize that's something going on in in your family dynamic, I think it's a matter of private sin. I think it's something where you go home, you sit down with your wife, and you sit down with your kids, and you say, we're going to change, we're going to be a God-oriented family. But if in looking at this relationship, you say, you know what, this is my response to sin. I blame my sin on other people. I blame my sin on the church. I've got contempt toward the brethren, contempt toward God. If you let these horsemen creep into your relationship with God and the church, please don't leave this assembly today without fixing that. Some of the things we talk about in the family are of private nature, and you do that at home in a private way. But some things affect who we are as a people. And if you're guilty of the four horsemen, if you've been bitter or negative or contemptuous toward the body of Christ, don't walk out of here without unfinished business. Ask God for the prayers. Ask this congregation for the prayers and fix your relationship with God before you fix any other relationship in your life. And if you're not a member of this body, if you're not a member of the church, you've not been baptized into the body, then we need you. We need your strength and your support and your talents and and the things that you bring. And you need a Savior to redeem you from your sins. If there's any way we can address a need for you to study with you, to pray with you, or to baptize you, come forward while we stand, while we sing.